this morning to 1 Peter chapter 4. Interestingly enough, it's how God always seems to work. <clears throat> the first uh, few verses here, I was already chewing on uh, verses 1 and 2 um, to teach uh, today before we ever arrived at the conference. And the conference passage was supposed to be out of uh, 1 Timothy, out of Timothy. And as we got into it, uh, into the study, the, the Mike McIntosh, the first night, he just he went into uh, a whole completely other passage, laying a foundation for what we'd get on Saturday. But the basis of, uh, of the weekend that we had is that he was helping us to understand and embrace the concept that uh, of suffering and then uh, being used as an instrument. And those are the those are the exact two things. That's what cha- what verse one and two of First Peter chapter four are dealing with, the issue of suffering. It talks about Jesus' sufferings, and then you we should arm ourselves with the same attitude of accepting suffering, um, and it's for the purpose of being the utensil uh, to be a refined utensil by God. So it was pretty amazing that. God was already leading me in that direction and then uh, gave me a few other things to kind of uh, blend into all of this this morning. So are you guys there in 1 Peter chapter 4? Excellent. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for, for your goodness, for your holiness, and Father, for your love for us, your devotion to us, and your watching over us. And Father, we come this morning gathered together as the body of Christ to bring glory and honor only to you. And so, Father, you've given us your word by which we know you and can understand your heart. And so, Father, we ask that you teach us through the power of your Holy Spirit this morning. Speak to us, revive us, correct us, whatever is necessary. But, Father, we know that you'll show us your love. And so... Father, may our hearts be tilled, may they be ready to receive the word that you are casting out upon us this morning. We ask that you uh, would just bless um, the children this morning um, in that which they will learn, and we ask that you would bless the teachers, and uh, Father, that they would have uh, patience and discernment on how to um, adequately communicate in a very simplistic way your love that you have for each and every one of those children back there. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to serve those children. And we thank you that we can serve a loving God, that we can make that decision in our lives of whom it is we choose to serve. In your son's name, we give you praise, honor, and glory. Amen. Have to do a mint change over to this left pocket here. Peter starts out, as you guys know, we've been going verse by verse through Peter on Tuesday nights, and we'll do chapter 4 on this Tuesday night. But he gives us this word before we get into this whole study. He gives us a word, therefore. Therefores are always given us there to do what? To find out what it's there for. You should never, ever... Here's a great, uh, great nugget... Uh, for Bible interpretation, for scripture interpretation, never read a therefore without knowing what comes before it. Because if you don't know what comes before it, you're certainly not going to understand what comes after it. You have to know what's there before the therefore because they're telling you, in light of all that we've spoken to you, therefore, now, usually, it's a this is how it applies to your life. By the way, most of you guys, I would say, probably participated in an Easter service last Sunday, right? Or a Resurrection Sunday service. Um, Maybe you guys have got to watch it online, whatever the scenario is. And it's interesting that we, when we think about Resurrection Sunday, we think about the suffering of Christ, we think about the crucifixion, we think about the burial, and then Sunday brings us to what? That point of resurrection. And it's cool because I had said last week that that is, that is the one thing, the one day a year 
that the whole universal church, the whole body of Christ, they agree about the same thing at the same time, and they're worshiping God about the same circumstances. Uh, There's a lot of other fragmentation going out there, concepts, teachings, whatever it is, but everybody gets the resurrection because it's the basis of our salvation, right? I mean, that's, that's why we are what we are is because Christ has come out of the grave. And for that, we come together. And when we look at that and we think about the life of Jesus, we think about uh, he lived a life of suffering, didn't he? Uh, We understand his suffering, especially his Passion Week. We see him, he's telling his disciples, I must go to Jerusalem, hand it over to sinful men. I must be put to death, but then I will what? I'll come out of the grave three days later. And he was preparing his disciples, and we saw him even in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember when he was praying to the Father three times, you know, if, if there's any way, let this cup, what, pass from me. But nonetheless, not my will be done, but, but your will be done. And Jesus, as he was praying in the garden and the disciples were sleeping, remember it said that it was like he was sweating drops of blood, which is a, a scientific truth. It's where your capillaries are so much stress that somebody's under. Your capillaries start bursting. It mixes them with the sweat glands, and it comes out as bloody sweat. And Jesus was literally, it wasn't that he was worried, that he was afraid, but he was feeling the weight of what was about to come upon him. And when he says, let this cup pass from me, Here's a, here's a good one for you guys. What does the cup represent when Jesus is saying that? The cup there is talking about the wrath of God coming upon him. And that's where he's going to take the full wrath of God upon himself for the sin of men, for our sin. And that's why he's saying if there's any other way for this to be done. So we see him going through that time of suffering. Has anybody suffered to the point of sweating blood yet, by the way? Anybody ever been to that point? So we understand how extreme a condition that was in his suffering. Then we see him going to the scourging post. And the closest concept we can get to that, I think Mel Gibson actually did a fairly you know, decent job as much as we could handle seeing something like that to give us that visual understanding. And I think everybody who saw that, it made them sick at their stomach. Um, if it didn't, there might be counseling needed or something. Um, but uh, just to see the body turned, and I'm sure it was much worse than what uh, they, than Hollywood could even give us a concept of. Is our suffering at the scourging post? Absolutely so. You see him then going to the cross. Hands, feet, having big, thick stakes being uh, nailed into him, driven through those body parts. He's now, in order to get a breath, he has to push up on his legs in order to uh, inhale. And whenever he brings the pressure off of his legs, he exhales. But every time he does that, it's creating immense pain in his body just to get each breath. And we remember that. He was there gathering breath unto himself so that he could pray for the people that are literally persecuting him, that are nailing him to the cross, right? Father, forgive them. What? They don't know. They don't understand what is happening here. Father, please don't wipe them out. Let the gospel have a chance to get to them. And even in that time on the cross, it's immense suffering. You guys agree with that? Was there immense suffering going through uh, just that few hour period that he's going through? And we all agree about that. And then we think, well, praise God. Two men, Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, they go, they ask uh, Potiphar for the body. Uh, They prepare it. The women were probably there and so forth. They're preparing the body. And then they put him in the grave. A few days later, he's risen from the grave. And we build this concept and we're like, yeah, that's so great because Jesus has suffered. He came and suffered on our behalf. And we really appreciate that, don't we? I mean, we appreciate that. We come and worship God because he came in flesh, our Emmanuel, God dwelling with us in flesh so that he could pay the penalty uh, of our sin. But in order for that penalty to be paid, what was Jesus going to have to experience in that fleshly body? suffering he's gonna have to experience suffering and man we're all cool with jesus experience suffering aren't we i mean we actually are thankful to god that he suffered and then the bible tells us those who desire to live godly for christ jesus will what suffer jesus says in this world you will have troubles yeah 
It's going to produce what in your life? Suffering. And the word of God tells us that. And then all of a sudden, we're not so excited about suffering anymore, are we? We love it in regards to somebody else suffering. Yeah, Jesus, great, the greatest sufferer of all time. But then God says, well, how about you? Can we bring some suffering into your life to purify you? Can we bring some suffering into your life, maybe to get your attention, maybe to deal maybe with sin in your life? And I'm not saying that all suffering we have is a result of sin, but I'm saying this, that when we go through sufferings, it's often the time when we see God. It's like sometimes we go through certain sufferings and it's the deepest pit of the well, the darkest place in the farthest corner of the forest. And it's at that point that God leads us to that we can see the brilliance of God. And then we understand that our suffering is never in vain. Our suffering is never worthless. Our suffering has a purpose in our lives. And we're going to see Jesus first and then relate it to ours. It's for our good. And it will do what to God? It'll bring glory to him. Suffering always does that. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, and the therefore is there to tell us that back in the second half of chapter 3, Peter has been equipping the, peop- uh, the people. By the way, let me just tell you, Peter is writing First Peter to equip the people who are getting ready to go into uh, the first wave of persecution by Caesar Nero. We know that, the Colosseum, they're going to be put in there, ripped apart by animals. We've, we've talked about all those things lit up on fire in, uh, in Caesar Nero's uh, courtyard as he's riding his chariot around, and the Christians will be burning as lanterns and so forth, illuminating his garden. Um, there's going to be some heinous things that are going on against the Christians, and Peter is writing to them to stand firm during this time of what? of suffering, because it's going to come your way. But it's better to suffer than to lose God for all eternity. It's better to go through it. It's better to put your emphasis on God than to walk away. So in light of that, he says, therefore, understand, comprehend. Let me read these verses to you, by the way. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 17. It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good rather than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to what? Okay, he suffered to do what? Okay, he suffered to bring us to God. He was put to death in the body, but now he's made alive by what? The spirit. There was a specific use for his body while he was here but now alive by the Spirit. And what we're going to find is there's a specific use. As we are now alive by the Spirit, there's still a specific use for this body for us here in this world. So therefore, in light of knowing that Jesus has been crucified and has risen from the grave so that he could walk you in behind the veil into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of his Father. He's saying, now, with that understanding, preparing your mind for action, we've already learned, now that you've grabbed that concept of what he has done, now, he's going to give us one more nugget, since Christ suffered in his body. Arm yourselves with the same attitude. Since Christ has suffered in his body... By the way, Christ's suffering was not for, it was not for himself. He didn't need to go to the cross for his sin. But Jesus most certainly did go to the cross and suffered. Matter of fact, I would think that having experienced heaven and then living in this world, every day in this world, there would be a certain understanding of suffering that he was going through. I think that whenever we become very heavenly minded and we start seeing this world the way that God sees it, I think we start understanding not only the suffering that's going around us, but we, in a sense, start to suffer because we start to long so much for the heavenly throne room. We long so much to be with God. We long so much to be out of this world of darkness and of evil and of sin and corruption. And we start to desire so much the things of heaven. But he dies for our sins to bring us. And the whole point of this was to bring us to God. He suffered in his body. I like it because it says that up there in chapter uh, 3, it says that uh, death to the body, but he was made alive by the spirit. Do you understand that Jesus is the model for us? 
In all things that he lived, he is the model that God desires for us. If you are a smart person, um, Jesus says you're either going to fit into one of the two categories. You're either going to be a wise man or a foolish man, right? So right now we know there are no mostly wise men or mostly foolish men. You're either going to follow one path, the wide or the narrow path, whichever one you want to choose. Here's the cool thing. You actually get to choose which one you want to go down. But Jesus didn't come to be... um, a great leader in the world that the, that the, in the way that the world will say, or uh, a great teacher. Um, uh, he didn't come to kind of be like a Buddha to the world of wise sayings and, and so forth, but he came to show us exactly who God is. If you've seen me, he says what? You've seen the Father, okay? He's the exact representation, Hebrews tells us, of the Father. And so when we see Jesus, we not only see God, but we also see what God desires for us to be. So when we look at the life of Christ, we can look at the life of Christ and we can parallel all of that to us. Of course, we can't be messiahs. There's only one anyways, and he's already died and he's risen from the grave and he sits at the right hand of God in the throne room. But when it comes to the life that he walked, the compassion that he had on sinful people, the understanding of the need to eradicate sin in people's lives because it's keeping them in bondage and condemning them to hell. That's exactly what God wants us to be walking moment by moment by. Because when we are walking with that mentality that sin is rampant in this world and it's taking men to hell and it's putting Christians in bondage so that they cannot be effective instruments, when we have that understanding we start to mourn over the condition of sin in people's lives. We start to mourn over our own sin. And we ask God, hey, do something about my sin. God, I need to follow you. And the only way we talked about this this morning in discipleship time, you cannot build enough practical applications in your life to protect you from the evils of this world. Did you know that? You can't get rid of all, all social media, computers, phones, billboards. You can't eradicate people off the street so you never look at somebody and say, you can't do that. But the key to all of it is this, and we found it was in the very last two lines of this last week's study, that when we make up the mind to look at Christ, we start losing the taste and desire to look at the things of this world. Christ says, if anyone's hungry right? (laughs) Or if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He says, I'm the bread of life. You need nourishment. I'm the one. I am what you are looking for and what you are seeking and what you are needing. And he says this, it says this, that he not only suffered and we understand suffering, but he suffered in his body. By the way, we, we now know that he has a, he has a, in a, I guess an eternal body, still has the marks and so forth in it. We're not going, we're going to have a perfected, we're going to have a perfect body when we get to heaven that God makes us. But Jesus throughout all eternity, he's going to have the nails and the, the nail piercing marks in his hands, his feet, the spear in the side, the, the ripped up skin on the back where the crown of thorns, he's always going to look like, well, John, as he turned around the revelator and he looked and he said, and behold, I saw the lamb of God, Right? And he saw the Lamb of God who had taken away the sins of the world. And he saw him as a sacrificial lamb. We now are saved and become spiritually reborn through the grace of God, through the power of Christ Jesus. We are still left to live in what? In these bodies, aren't we? Jesus, when he came into this world, he used his body and he took a military stance, you might say, against sin with his body, and his body paid the penalty for it, right? His body paid the penalty. His body was crucified. Now, here's the deal. You and I are left with bodies, aren't we? Temporary, right? They're just tense. They're going away. And what we're going to find is, as Jesus used his body as an instrument to war against sin, we now also are going to be called to use our bodies to do what? This flesh and blood? To war against what? Sin. And whatever persecution, whether it become verbal or maybe it's even physical, maybe it's torture, 
hey, if they want to torture this body, they can do that. Scripture tells us, don't be afraid of the man who can harm the body, but be afraid of him who can take your soul to hell. And that would be God. God's in charge of everything spiritual. Don't be afraid of the man that can break your arms and your knees and throw you into a coliseum, shock you, whatever it may be. Don't be afraid of the one that can hurt the flesh and blood, but be aware of the one and understand the one who deals, who's holding your soul for all eternity, one way or the other. It tells us this, if you turn with me over uh, to Romans 6.13. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. And Romans 6.13. And it says this, Romans 6.13, do not, what's that next word? Offer the parts of your body to sin it means this your attention please what paul is saying is that you can make you are actually making the decision on how you want your body to be used in this world he equates it to an instrument our bodies are now instruments either for righteousness we'll find or instruments for evil but here's the cool thing these are instruments now for god right? Um, Offer your bodies as living what? Sacrifices. This is your spiritual act of worship. We understand that one of the problem with living sacrifices is what? They have the tendency to squirm off of the, the place of sacrifice. Anybody ever, you guys understand that? Oh, Lord, use me, use me, use me. Oh, but, oh, not that way. That wasn't what I was asking for. And so he says this, you, you and I actually have the decision, do not, he says the word, offer. It's almost like the idea of a tribute, or now you are worshiping in this direction. And he says, do not offer the parts of your body to what? To sin. Wouldn't that be a foolish thing? Because Jesus used his body to defeat sin. So wouldn't it be kind of counterproductive if we're using our body to be involved in sin, to help sin grow, to nourish sin? Our bodies are to be used in the same way that Jesus' body was used to what? To battle sin. And he says this, do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of what? Wickedness. Now, he's writing this to the church of Rome, and he's telling them, you and I have the opportunity, as with these vessels, with these bodies, to do that which is counterproductive to the work of God. And he says, if you so want to make the decision, you'll go in that direction, direction, but he says, don't do it, because now you're offering your body to wickedness, to evil, And as we've been talking uh, last week, Jason uh, had clung on to this and we had talked about it uh, a little bit, that if you you see your life kind of as, as a window and as sin, as you allow sin to come into your life, that can be in a lot of different areas, very basic areas, television, computer, even conversations, the way you look at people at work or out in public. And if you understand that sin starts hitting that glass pane, And after a time, it starts getting dirtier and dirtier and dirtier. And now you can see less clearly than you could before. Not only is your vision impaired, but now your hearing from God becomes impaired. Not only is your vision impaired, your hearing from God, but now your walk starts no longer going down the narrow road. Now you're starting to broaden your boundaries a little bit. We don't have time to mention it really again but that's where your spiritual guardrails those people in your lives that kind of like the bumper pool kind of knock you back onto the the highway of glory again where you need to have those people in your lives don't offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness but rather offer yourselves to to god here's a very basic question for every single person in this room myself included because i would be you know every single person in this room Examine your last week. Nobody has to say anything out loud or anything like that. Examine your last week. Can you say 
And the point that Paul is desiring to get us to, that Peter's desiring to get us to, that Jesus is desiring to get us to, is can you say that you walked this week with your desire to bring glory to God? Or was it bound up in the busyness of life? We got kids, we got home, we got work, we got vehicles, we got houses, we got all of these things to try and maintain. What would you say you offered your life to this week? Interestingly enough, I was going to talk about it later, but I'll go ahead and bring it up now. The issue of idols, right? We all understand what idols are. But the one thing that we often won't admit is, well, we all understand idols, but, oh, I don't have any idols in my life. No, uh uh-uh. That's for the other people. That's for the other people that aren't in church. Oh, they're just idols. I see all friends. They have all these idols in their lives, right? We never, we never accept that we have idols. Here's another thing we don't accept. That there are people in our lives that the seed has fallen on their life. They showed some response at some point, but they're like the seed that Jesus is talking about in the parable sower that shot up and then it, what, withered away and died, showing that there's no life there. Now, those, those people who are attending church that, you know, withered up and then spiritually have just died, well, we, we would never think that, that they weren't going to heaven because, well, surely they, I know that they prayed the prayer at some point. My point is this, is that we never think that the people in our families could be the people that aren't truly spiritually born, but made a decision about Jesus as far as I believe in you, you know? But we never accept that those would be the people in our lives. The other thing is this, we never accept that we might be the people with the false idols, right? You guys agree with that? Here's a really good way to tell. If this week, if as you live through this week, you found that you accomplished your work that needed to be done, and that's unnecessary, right? We need to work. You had to eat, you know, the three meals, the preparation, the cooking, the shopping, all that's entailed. You can spend a few hours, several hours within a week of, you know, your 21 meals and all of that. And lots of hours can go into that. Well, you know, you got to watch your favorite show because, you know, you got to keep up and it's fun and it's relaxing. And, well, you have to do all of your emailing back and forth and some of you the, the Facebooking and, and this and that. And you've, you've got to maybe take your kids to this event or that event. And then you have church involved in all of that, right? I mean, there's... You know, there's several hours a week that you're doing that. And, and if you go through all of that, didn't even get to the point of if you're married, you have a relationship, trying to develop all of that. If you get to all of that, and you get to the end of the week and say, you know, I actually never got to the Word of God. I never got to the point where I could sit down and communicate and, and talk with God and hear from Him. What that means is this. However many I just listed off there, six, seven, eight things, you got eight gods in your life. You got eight false gods in your life. You got, you have eight false gods in your life. You guys agree with that? It's a hard one, isn't it? Now, here's the deal. This is how it transforms. Ready? These things are always going to compete with you and God. They're always going to compete with that. And we always seem to sacrifice. We make great sacrifices for these things in our lives, but seldom, as we're learning in Bonhoeffer, discipleship is always going to be a sacrifice. There's always going to be a cost to you to follow Jesus. Remember Jesus called Levi away from that profession. He was making big bucks there. Hey, if you truly want to come follow me, rich young ruler, go sell everything you have, give a wage to the poor. It's a stumbling block to you particularly. It's not the biblical model for everybody to go sell everything, give it away. But for that man, it was his stumbling stone. When he called the fishermen, he called them away from their fishing boats, their business and so forth that is there, their livelihood for their families, and he called them away from that. There's always a cost involved with discipleship with following Jesus. By the way, when Jesus calls you to follow him unto salvation, it is, that, it is the same call to discipleship. It's one in the same. He never says, come and accept me, but don't follow me. Salvation and discipleship are tied together like Savior and Lord cannot be separated. So here's how it happens. 
Maybe we found ourselves, we've got this week, we've been separated from God, now we can identify we've got all these gods in our lives. You cure it this way, and it's so cool. It's not that you eradicate those things out of your life, but you take Jesus, you plug him up at the top of the equation. He gets first fruits of all things in your life. If you are not, I can already tell you, if he is not, if he, if he, the God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, is not receiving the first fruits of all of your life, your time, the wealth that he gives you, the abilities he gives you, uh, the gifts that he gives you, all of that, he's down here. But all we have to do is this, to eradicate those gods out of our lives that we're serving, you put Christ first and all of those become secondary. And they're no longer your false idols in your life. They're no longer the gods of mammon that you serve. They're no longer the gods of time and and of freedom and and easy living. As a matter of fact, it's an amazing thing that in our American culture, we have taught our, our culture that the purpose in living is to get to a point in your life where you can do what? Relax and retire. Living the good life. That is so far from the biblical concept. I don't understand really pastors retiring. Unless they lose their mind, their ability to communicate, whatever it is. I don't understand pastors hitting 63 years old and retiring. Does that make sense? It doesn't make sense to me. Sorry. Back to the point. If he's been absent, you've got a plethora of of idols that are leading you and you are bowing down and choosing to serve them. It's your choice. But you can also, in the same way, choose to serve God. And it says this still in the Romans chapter 6 passage. He says, Do not offer the parts of your bodies to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Do you understand that now you have been spiritually reborn? Do you understand you've been separated from the old life of sin? Do you understand that as you essentially have now been uh, released from the prison, the, the life prison sentence that you had, and you're allowed to go out onto the street, and you can either go east or west, whichever you, way you want to go, but your old lifestyles over here, the old sinful, the cravings of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, all of that is back there with your old friends, your old relationships, your old lifestyle, but here's the new life that Christ is offering you, and we get to make the decision. Do I want to go to the right and to the new life that God has given me, or do I want to just go back? to my old lifestyle. Paul would say it like this to the Corinthians. Wouldn't you think it's a foolish thing to unite Jesus with the prostitute? Wouldn't you guys think that's kind of, yeah, I mean, we wouldn't do that, right? We wouldn't do it in word. But we certainly have probably done it in thought and in action because we've used our bodies as the temple of God. And we unite it to things that are of this world. One of the things that came out that I took note of over this weekend is we really have to step back and say, have I become, well, the proverbial frog in the boiling water? Have I become so used to my society around me that I'm comfortable in the society around me, which is very sinful, and my life follows follows those directions and those concepts, is my life really becomes so much like that that I'm comfortable in, in the world around me. Mike McIntosh, by the way, he's a man that just has had an amazing ministry. Um, about 140 churches have been started out of uh, the church there in San Diego. He doesn't believe in big church, so as soon as the church started growing, just ch- chunks of people and started churches all over the place. He's a man who probably flies around the globe twice a month Um, He knows uh, great world dignitaries. Um, He's met just about everybody. Um, Lots of opportunity to really spread the gospel. And my train of thought just left. And he was telling us this. He knows people that are high-ranking congressmen, senators, all of that. And they're telling him that they're in fear that our country is going to collapse. 
they know. And he said, well, you're the person that represents me, and you're telling me that you think that our country is going to collapse. And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, wow, that's a pretty hard saying. What's interesting is, are we participating in the collapse of our country by the way we choose to use our finances, by the way we choose to live our lives, by a lack of prayer, by a lack of dedication to the word of God, by a lack of dedication to the body of Christ? And one of the things they did was they gathered all the pastors there, and Jim and Mike talked with us. And, you know, Mike told us this. He said, guys, you're here in the Midwest. And Mike has a passion for the Midwest because he knows that during the time of tribulation, when the earthquakes start happening and the famines start coming in, where are all those millions of people from the coast going to go? They're going to come in. And he wants something left here. I'm not saying that the church is going to be here. I don't believe that the church will be here in that time. But it's why he wanted to build the network of 300 radio stations across the Midwest that could be put on autopilot as long as there was gas in the generators or whatever was needed to continue to just broadcast the gospel truth. We have an opportunity here today. This isn't just about church, but this is standing in the last days is what we are in, guys. This is Jesus talking about in Revelation 2 and 3, and to he who overcomes, I will give, dot, 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 and there's about six or seven different things there. This is about being men that are going to stand and women who are going to stand and unite because I guarantee you at some point, and I think we'll see some pretty heinous things happen here in the world, I think that the church is going to become a persecuted church uh, in my generation. And I also believe that people will be running to us for hope and for help, and for truth. So we make our stand today of what we will live for, what kind of men and women and families we will develop, because it's going to have great eternal consequences, and even consequences here in this world. We get to choose, Paul tells us in Romans 6, he says, offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. Consider your life this last week, and now consider what you desire to do next week. Also in our study this morning, it came out that oftentimes we hear something and we think, man, that sounds so good. That's so right. Yeah, Paul, you nailed it. But when we're told to consider Christ Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, it's not just think about what he's done, but think about to the point of what? A decision in your life. Can you tell me, can I tell you that my relationship with Christ Jesus actually had a phenomenal impact on my life this last week? And our answer should be a resounding yes, absolutely. The church should be gathering together on Sundays on the Lord's Day and saying, man, this is what the Lord lived in my life. This is how he lived through me and this life I live. It's Christ who's living in and through me and in and through you. Well, back over to Peter. With this understanding now, let me make sure that I didn't... Now he tells us this. So that was just the first seven words. Since Christ suffered in his body, now we understand that back to 1 Peter 4. Now that we understand suffering in the body, this is, what, this is where the exhortation comes. This is where the point of decision for you and for me as we're traveling through the word of God on this bus together. Now he says, arm yourselves. Previous chapter 113, he says, prepare your mind for what? For action, be self-controlled and put your hope fully on the grace that is to be given to you when Christ Jesus is revealed. There he said, prepare your minds for action. Now he's saying this, arm yourselves. Scripture also tells us to put on the armor of what? Yeah, put on the armor of God, put on righteousness, put off the old self, the word of God tells us. And he says, arm yourselves with the same what? attitude you know what jesus really to boil all this down you know what jesus's attitude was when he came in this world it was obedience to the father and the defeat of sin obedience to the father and the defeat of sin and now peter is telling us he's breaking it down so simplistic arm yourself with the same attitude scripture also tells us philippians 2 tells us that we should have the same attitude of christ jesus right 
And he goes on in that Philippians 2 passage. And what does, what does Paul talk about there? But he talks about the suffering of Jesus being made a little lower than the angels, right? Did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He knew he was God. He knew he was of God. But he made himself a little, low, a little lower. He became flesh. Hebrews 10 tells us that God prepares a body for me you have made, O Lord. And the Hebrew author is citing an Old Testament psalm. A body for me you have prepared. Another passage, he says this, I have come to do your will, O God, in Hebrews. It has been his desire to follow the will of God. And following the will of God, catch this, guys, very basic. Following the will of God defeats what? Sin. Sin is only defeated. And I'm not, Jesus comes, let me, let me make this clear. Jesus, when he goes on the cross, he defeats the power of sin over us. It no longer can condemn us, but we're still left in these fleshly bodies. Now, it's the word of God and the spirit of God that we're able to overcome the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. It's, this, uh, it's our fleshly nature that we desire, and that can only be overcome by desiring to do the will of God and the word of God and the spirit of God being worked in our lives to pure us, to purify us from all of our unrighteousness. Jesus told his disciples, you are now clean because of the words that I have spoken to you. Hmm. Do you know what your attitude is towards sin? Have you thought about it? Line up your attitude with your last week and see what your attitude is. Because we all unreservedly would say, sin is what? VBS answer. Sin is bad, right? Sin, bad, God, good. Sin, bad, God, good. Bless you. You okay? Need to wipe off your your iPad screen there or anything? (laughs) But do we ever consider the influence of sin upon our lives? the influence of the false gods that we've established, that we follow, that we bow down to, that we're in bondage to. And he says this, arm yourselves, which means it's a physical action. It's a physical action of saying, hey, I'm going to do battle against this. Because he who suffered in his body is done with sin. Let me ask you, are you done with sin? Have you come to the understanding of sin so much in your life that you're like, it's not worth it. There's no value. It only brings destruction. Going contrary to God. Remember, sin, by definition, is just missing what? It's just missing the mark. It's the old uh, British word, sinner. And whenever they were shooting archery and they missed the bullseye, they, the person was just called a sinner. It means they just missed the mark. And that's what sin is. It's missing the mark of what God has in store for you and for me. And as a result, he does not live the what? The rest. The what? The rest of his earthly life for God. I'm sorry. <laughs> We're going to have to cut that one out. Let me read. I, I skipped the line there. Now you know that's ha- how that happened to the scribes when they were writing down the Bible. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires. Guys, your attention, please. Look what Peter's saying here. You have a rest of a life in this world. It's all going to be a different length of time. It could be a day, a week, a month, a year, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 50 years, 80 years. But each and every one of us, there's a different length of time. We all have a rest of our life. Here's the deal. What are you as an instrument of God? Have you made a decision? And let's say salvation's there. Have you made a decision about what you're going to do with the rest of your life? Or are you just, hey, I'm under the grace of God living in the world? I said this last week or two weeks ago. How many of you, by the way, are having just such a thrilling time working so you can pay bills? Isn't that just a great, isn't that a great life to live? 
Hey, I work so hard. I work overtime. Nobody even likes me at work. Can't stand my boss. Kids are running crazy. Uh, you know, bills keep coming in. I write, I write, I write. They show up. I think my utilities are billing me like three times a month. My mortgage payment four or five. Seems like it's always there. It's always on the table. It's always saying, pay me now, pay now, pay now. And we have that. Is that an exciting? Are you guys just thrilled that that's the life you're living? Is there anybody here that can say, man, that's just the greatest concept that's ever been invented? It's not, is it? In a sense, it's kind of depressing, isn't it? No, I'm going to do this whole week over again so I can put utilities in my house. I'm going to do this whole thing again, and I'm actually going to get ahead, and then you know what? I'm going to need a roof. I'm going to need to paint the house. I'm going to need to replace a window, replace a door, replace the carpet, replace the tile, repaint, whatever it is. Then there's tires on the cars, and there's struts on the cars, and there's all this different stuff there, and then we got to get to the clothing. Then we got to go to the supermarket. And you ever feel like you just can't quite ever just get to where you'd like to be just not a lot there's nothing thrilling about my point is this there's nothing thrilling about that life of working and paying bills but man if you turn your mind towards the understanding that you're an instrument of god and god is desiring to purify you to do some extraordinary work in and through you Man, it's where life becomes precious. It's where Jesus says, I've come to bring you an abundant life. By the way, I want you guys to understand, however God works in this world, it's miraculous. You hearing from the Holy Spirit today, it's miraculous. Did you know you praying to God is miraculous? Because within this space-time continuum, this world system we're in, We don't understand, we don't have laws that explain those things. Everything in this world acts according to laws. God created it like that. When God works inside of this world, mankind can't understand it. We don't have laws for that. We don't know how a Red Sea can part. We don't know how walls can just spontaneously fall down. We don't understand how somebody walks on water. We don't understand how somebody's raised from the dead because we don't have scientific understanding or laws that support that. So anytime that God, who is outside of this world, works in this world and through you and me, it's simply miraculous. And that's attractive to people. Of course, we have to understand it's not for our glory, is it? And it better not become for your glory. But this is the cool thing. That's how people are attracted. Jesus said it like this. The world will know you guys are my disciples because of your love an extraordinary kind of love a miraculous kind of love that a bunch of rough and tumble men can get together and can wash one another's feet the world doesn't do that do they it's only by the power of god and he says this he does not live the rest here's another question for you have you thought about what you're going to do with the rest of your life Because if the rest of your life you're trying to plan, well, I'd like to be working here in five years, I'd like to be doing this, or I'd like to be working there, or I hope to retire and be living here, whatever the deal is, man, you might just be missing God's absolute best for you. So often the message that I have to bring to the body is is not salvation. Obviously, I'm not preaching salvation to the body, but I'm preaching or I'm proclaiming or trying to show you the life that you're neglecting and missing out on that God says it's out of this world. And that's where the word of God for believers, that's Paul and Peter and James, these guys are pointing us, and John, they're pointing us towards the full rich life of God. Please don't settle for working to pay bills. Can you imagine where you are, some of you you younger people, can you imagine where you are in just the struggles of life, paying bills, doing all that? Can you imagine doing that for another 40 years and then just dying? would be where's the value he doesn't live the rest of his early his earthly life for evil human desires but rather he lives it for what man the will of god as i said before jesus says i've come to do what your will oh god tell me this morning christian is that the statement that you're proclaiming man let it be because there's always two routes and what i found is there's no gray area we as believers like gray area don't we 
We want, we want our salvation. We love our Jesus. We love our Savior. But boy, when it comes to surrender, when it comes to giving of time, when it comes to responding back to God with all that He has been given to us, when it comes to spending time with the body, well, then it becomes optional things. Let me just close with this. Let me see what I have here first before we move on. I want to give you guys, I want to take you over to Acts 2.42. Acts 2.42, I'll let you guys get there and then I'll take, require your attention. Acts 2.42. Both of you guys will be familiar with this. Acts 2.42, over the last few weeks, about the last three or four weeks, I've been chewing on this, and Angela and I have had a lot of uh, discussion about Acts 2.42 and, and the body and what God's trying to do in and through the body. And... Coming from the conference even, it kind of really uh, buttressed up against what, what we already know to be true in the direction that we're going. But it's the fact that um, the world desperately needs a church that is standing, for, uh, standing firm today. I mean, the world, the world needs men and women of God that will speak God's truth to them. They don't need watered-down people. They're not looking, they don't need um, stuff that's going to pertain to their flesh, but what they need are people, and I love this phrase, it's been around for several years, what they need is people that are actually authentic Christian. Authentic Christianity is the phrase. People who have an authentic faith, not a church faith, not a, well, I go and I, part, you know, I kind of do this and we're there and so forth, and oh yeah, well, that's my church. Not people that look at their church as the building that they go and attend, but people who understand that can say this, that's where the body, that's where I meet with the body of believers there. That's where I go and commune with God and with other believers. And your spiritual health, and we've come and we've reduced it down to this. I didn't know if I would say it this morning, but we're gonna, but I feel led in this direction. Acts 2.42 gives us a spiritual health meter in our Christian walk. Because if we are not healthy with the body of Christ, it shows that we're not healthy with Christ. We are not talking about sonship being diminished or taken away. By the grace of God, we are who we are. And in our salvation is never taken away. Sonship is never diminished. We are the sons and daughters of God. But what can be diminished is our fellowship with God, right? Sonship is never an issue. Fellowship can greatly, the world is trying to take away our fellowship with God. And so when we look at Acts 2.42, what I found to be true is this. Sorry, one more moment, please. What I found to be true in this, when believers struggle, these four areas that are listed here, inevitably, they'll fall away from the body and completely go back into the world. I have seen it over the course of years that I've been involved in ministry, been a pastor six years, been involved in ministry, collegiate ministry, much longer than that, another eight or nine, ten years behind, behind that. Every circumstance of people falling away from the body of Christ, I could go back and I could say, and I could sit down with them, and I could ask them, how are you doing in these four areas? This is a good thing to see your spiritual health and how you're relating to the body of Christ and Christ himself. Acts 2.42 says this, and they what? That should be circled, highlighted, marked, that is the key. It's not just a, this is something that should be happening, but this is something that your life should be devoted to. This is an absolute must in your life. Without it, you're going to fall away. You're going to get on the outside. You're going to spend further and further and further and further. Then there'll be a, a sickness. Then there'll be a hospital stay. Then there'll be financial something. Then there'll be a family or whatever it may be. And then all of a sudden, you're just flung out into the wilderness. And you might stay out there for a week, month, years, two years, three years, five years, ten years. Does that make sense? When you understand these four things and you understand core unity in the body of Christ, 
It's your desire to be as close into the core of the body of believers. By the way, what is the core in a body of believers? It's Christ. It's not the pastor. It's not the building. It's not the ministry. But it's Christ Jesus. And it should be our desires to be fighting in our spiritual lives to be as close to Christ within the body as possible. Peter has told us in chapter 2, we are living stones. We are building. We're spiritual stones in a, in a building that is being built. The building is a what, by the way? Temple of God, okay? Where God dwells. And so it says this in 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Your attention, please. First thing is apostles' teaching. Well, I'll go quickly through this. Scripture has told us that we should be craving pure what? Spiritual milk. That, that we should seek that our lives, that we should be desiring as our babies right now, or some of our children are probably starting to get hungry. Who has the boy that's growing like a weed right now? <laughs> I looked at him and I saw myself and I'm like, you know, I first thought, well, I bet that kid likes to run. And then I thought, man... That kid, I bet he burns through the calories. I bet he can eat and eat and eat. And he craves. He's probably hungry right now. I know that we probably have a baby back there that's probably starting to get hungry. I know that probably all the kids. Grace is another one. Uh, she'll eat a big breakfast a Sunday morning and come in and she'll be like, I'm hungry. Well, what would you have for breakfast? Well, a bowl and a half of cereal, an egg or two, a piece of toast. And that was just like 20 minutes ago and you're hungry. You understand cravings. And that's what scriptures tells us. We should be craving this. Now, because of the society in which we live, we have some people that here every other Sunday because of work. We have some people that work on Tuesday nights. Some people are taken out of town for their work. And so there's a hit and miss. And then on top of all that, we have people that have to man that back there, four or five people, three or four people at least every week that are back in there ministering to the children so that you can be ministered to out here. It is absolutely necessary that when you find yourself away to go back, that's why we put it on audio and we put full videos online, that you can spend the time and you can sit down and you can, once again, you're being reunited with the body of Christ because you're hearing the same thing that they heard. Does that make sense? Because when you don't do that and you're not hearing what the Spirit of God is proclaiming through the pastor and you're like, oh, well, we just missed that week. We'll just kind of go on. You now have lost on some of the spiritual food that God has given to the body of Christ. And what starts to happen to you? You start to diminish a little bit. And the more that you're away, and the more that you're not involved in in craving the word of God, personal time, getting in the word of God and memorizing it, you'll be drifting away from it. First step in your evaluation of spiritual health within the body is, do you desire the word? When you're not there, are you in it? Are you finding the time later on? I know Brad and Betsy, we're changing our schedule and how we do kids. And uh, they've made the commitment that he's going to be back in the nursery on Tuesday nights. Betsy's going to be teaching the older children on Tuesday nights. So they understand that Wednesday, Thursday, Friday night, somewhere Saturday night, they're going to set aside a block of about an hour and 15 minutes that they can sit down and listen or watch the video, depending on internet speed that night. But guys... Discipleship, there's always a cost. And when we choose not to pay that cost and we choose to give it towards other false gods, it starts to diminish us spiritually and it starts to diminish us within the body of believers. Second thing is this, to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. Fellowship in Greek means what? Partnership. Are you partnered with the body of Christ? It means, are you actively engaged? Is the ministry that is happening there, do you, under, do you claim that as your ministry as well? One of the greatest things, and it's what Jesus talked about time after time after time, was, was how we relate to the body, and do we see that as a fellowship, as a partnership that we are involved in? And I can tell you this, one way is just not simply being there, but as Scripture exhorts us over and over again, is simply this. The need of responding back to God with what he's given you supports financially those things that are needed within the body of Christ that cost money. Electricity, carpet, everybody enjoys it. But I tell you this, 
If you're not financially involved in your fellowship, you will always be, you will always set yourself out on the perimeters of what's going on. Because you will always feel like, well, you'll know in the back of your mind, I'm not really supporting that. We know we should, right? We all know, yeah, we should. But we hear the word and we're like, yeah, I know we're supposed to do that, but it's so hard. But here's the deal. This isn't about you giving or not giving. All I'm telling is this. The truth is, when you make that decision to not be involved in your fellowship that way, you are purposefully placing yourself out on the outer edges of the fellowship. And you will never feel unity with the body of Christ. And you can do with that with what you want. And like I said, people who have always left the fellowship, these are all major indicators of why sooner or later they wander away from God or wandering away from God. The third one was this, to the breaking of bread. Your, your relationships with the body of Christ, with other believers, are you actively engaging? I am a guy who actively engages with other men in the fellowship. I spend a lot of time with you guys, a lot of lunches. I now have to kind of re, I have to consider how I eat now because you guys are, are demanding me to go out and eat at McAllister's and drink sweet tea and chocolate chip cookies. So I'm reevaluating what I eat, but I'm still going to do that. And I take that step not just for you but also for me but for the body of christ to glorify god can you say that you have active relationships in the body of christ it would be a sad thing to say i'm not going to say that it's a sad thing to be present so much but to not actually have true godly relationships with people your fellowship is not supposed to be acquaintances. Now, let me say, as the body grows bigger, there will be some people, you know, you can only handle maybe about two or three real friends in your life. But do you have those? Are you establishing those? That is a necessary. It's what the word of God is saying. And these four things applied, it brought what to the body of Christ? The first century church. It brought what? Unity. And where there is unity, there was there was strength in their muscle. Yeah, there was muscle. There was spiritual muscle. There was strength. And it's why when the people prayed, the places were shaken. Because there was unity. There was the craving of the word of God. There was a partnership in the ministry of what was going on. Not only spending time together breaking bread, but often in that day, the, the phrase breaking bread does give the understanding of eating and breaking bread. But what they did is after they were done eating, they participated in communion. Jesus said, as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. When you guys sit down and eat, hey, commune with me during it. And the fourth thing was simply this. <laughs> simply prayer. You may have a different understanding of what you think prayer needs to be. As you look through the word of God, you see a lot of different ways in which people are praying. But if you are not involved in prayer with the body, you will inevitably be found on the perimeter. Because not only when we pray, when we pray, we're praying about what is going on in our lives. And we talk, and we will even share what's going And that's a great thing about the time when we pray is that people can actually share, this is what is happening in my life. Let me say, I need to use this as an illustration, and don't take it as a, a, a prick or a poke, but I need to use this as an illustration for the body. I point out, just ask two people, or I was talking about when Karen was going into surgery. And I only asked two people, and I thought, I have to stop talking. I have to stop asking people about this. There are actually two people who, who didn't even know that Karen was going into surgery. And that's the only two that I asked. And I'm like, I can't even ask anymore. Didn't that seem really strange to some of you? Like, no, that seems strange. I mean, and I'm saying it's not about you, but what that tells us is that is how far we're, we, we can become removed from the body, from fellowship, from partnership, from the word, from communion, that we couldn't know something. We only have 15 to 20 people. How could something like that escape our mind's reach? And guys, my exhortation to you is this. 
all that we see in Peter, understand what you go through in your life. God's going to bring sufferings to grow you. Your sufferings that you will have, it's, it always it has the tendency, it's either going to, you're either going to run from God or you're going to run to him. And the sufferings that we go through, it's for our good and for his glory. And let me say that as you go through your sufferings, it must, you must do it along with the body of Christ. You need their prayer. You need their encouragement. You need their hope. You need all of that and their support. Everybody else in the body of Christ, we all need, we need to be fixated on the nucleus of the body of Christ, which is Christ the head, our Lord and Savior. All I can say is this, and then I close. All I can say is simply this. Every person I have ever seen wander from the Lord or to live a powerless life, they neglected those four very basic foundational, fundamental areas in their lives. If those are applicable to your lives, understand what I'm saying. That's the course you're on. My hope is pastor. You see the word of God. You sense the Holy Spirit and you repent from the direction you're going and you give your life as an instrument for the glory of God. Stop working for yourself and serve the Lord. Amen.